My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 48 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast, sponsored by Jason Kyo Therapy Sports and Injury Clinic. If you want to stay injury free over the summer and perform well in your racing, stay tuned as on this week's episode, head coach at Running Coach Ireland, Rene Borg, talks us through getting the balance right between racing and training over the summer months. And our special guest, neuromuscular therapist Jason Kyo, gives us some great advice on keeping the injuries away. Everybody, get your running gear on, let's go. Hey everybody, really looking forward to this week's episode as being consistent in your training, staying fresh and healthy and avoiding injuries is really what it's all about when it comes to having a successful season of racing and as we head into the summer months, I'm sure everybody listening has their own big goals, their own big races that they are getting ready for, so hopefully you'll find lots of good tips over the next hour or so. As you heard there in the intro, we're delighted to have Jason come on board as well as sponsor for the next two months through Jason's sports and injury clinic jktherapy.ie based in Belgard Heights and Tala and as you'll hear later in our feature interview with Jason he's a very experienced and successful mountain runner as well of course as his experience and qualifications in neuromuscular therapy so who better to help get you back on track to get you back fit if an injury does pop up on the racing front everybody the Imre summer calendar has been in full swing since our last recording and there has been six Imre races um, since our last episode went out so the results have been flying in I won't go through them all guys but you can find them all in great detail on Imre Ie, where they have a superb database of results but I did note that Barry McAvoy our guest from two shows back and um, Barry racked up another two wins in the Haute Summer race and in Ard Gillen as well which makes it a highly impressive seven out of eight wins for Barry this year alone well done Barry great to see you back racing again and um, in cross in Scotland there was some great news for the Irish as and we'll go into it a little bit more detail with Rennie in our next segment but just in case you missed it Laura O'Driscoll battled through the weather battled through pain and battled through the entire female field to win the Cape Rat Ultra in 61 hours 26 minutes what an achievement 400 kilometers and it would normally take backpackers 20 days to complete those 400 kilometers so to do it in what in just over two days two and a half days or so was incredible incredible running and battling from from laura well done laura in fifth place also was irish runner irene finnegan and in the men's race our friend of the show david barry our guest from episode 44 was a superb third in 53 minutes and two seconds which really makes his trans Grand Canadia effort look like a warm-up compared to those incredible 400 kilometers. Well done, guys, if, you're, if you are listening in inspiring, inspiring stuff. Um, before we call in, Rene, a big thank you to Padraig Burke, who took a moment during the week to go to our Patreon and make a small contribution of €3 Euros a month, which help keeps us going. Thanks indeed to all the Patreons who stick with us over the course of the year, as it just means that we can allocate the time from our usual daily busy grind of family commitments training commitments work commitments as well
well to help produce the show so thanks a million guys for sticking with us over the last what nearly two years now and if you do like what we do in terms of helping to grow the sport of trail running in ireland and mountain running do pop over to Patreon and we'd be very grateful if you look us up, Trail Running Ireland podcast, and there you can make a monthly contribution. Right, so time to call in Rene and chat about getting the balance right between training hard and racing hard. Rene Borg from Running Coach Study. Rene, great to have you on board as always. And Rene, we've got Jason Kyo coming up now very shortly to help us keep injury free over the summertime. And I think we've got a really interesting piece for everybody now as well about how to stay fresh, how to train and then race at the, sa- and race at the same time. But maybe just before we get into that, I'm sure you are busy watching the dots on the computer screen over the weekend. Lots of uh, interesting races and results from some of our Irish mountain and trail runners. Yeah, there was a good few races on, Owen, uh, you know, including the, the local ones. I'm sure you'll have them in your summary anyway, but a little bit further afield, uh, there was this kind of massive undertaking that they call the Cape Roth uh, 400k, so I'd say it's an aged eight-day stage race um, all over, mainly trail and a lot of bog as far as I could hear. Uh, but it's basically, for those who don't know much about Scotland, it goes from Fort William, which is kind of, you know, it's a good way down um, on the western coast. And the trail basically goes to up the whole west coast to the top of Scotland, you know, where Cape Roth is. Um, and we had, uh, we had Laura, um, Laura O'Driscoll, that a lot of people on the call probably know, um, she led the ladies' race uh, for most of it uh, through a lot of, uh, what do you say, a lot of hardship. She had two sprained ankles from pretty early on. Um, she lost the lead, I think, for two days, but she managed to get it back and 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 won the race. And I think there was a second woman, Irish woman, in fifth. And if I, I actually didn't look at the final result for the men, but there was a guy called David Barry, well up there in third. So hopefully he. He made the podium as well. Sure. But anyway. People will know Dave and many from our podcast about what maybe two or three episodes ago. Dave, of course, was one of the top Irish finishers in the, oh, sorry, the top Irish finisher, I think, in the Trans Grand Canaria. And Dave gave us a great account of that. And then I remember he was saying to me that he was going to try and turn it around and go for a Cape Rat. Well, he recovered well from Transgrand Canaria in February and there he was in third place and I just have it here on the screen ran a 53 hours of running incredible and then of course Laura who we had back in I think around episode 13 so if anybody wants to find out more about Laura and uh, and her great story uh, you can get her back in episode 13 and she won in 61 hours Rennie and great great performances from the two of them yeah, it, re- it really was, you know, and the only kind of, uh, what would you say, um, the only thing that soured our car bone was that we had John Conway in the race, one of our clients and actually Laura's partner. Um, and he was doing really, really well. Um, and he was up, I think, in ninth. And they went into the third last day, which is 68Ks, one of the two biggest days. And unfortunately, he just got swept into a river. Um, and by the time he managed to get himself out, uh, he was so soaked and out of it uh, that he had to retire at the second last checkpoint of that day. So it was an awful pity because he actually didn't miss much of the race. Uh, but um, he was then anyone who who had a, an incident like that, you know, who had to retire. They were moved on to a short course for the rest of the race. 
So he was he actually managed to complete and he got the whole way up to Cape Roth, but he was doing shorter legs for on day seven and eight. Mm-hmm. So he, um, he he was in the non-competitive category. So that was it was an awful pity because it really looked like it could have been a kind of a seminal performance, I think, for John. But he was actually he was happy just to be alive when I spoke to him. Yeah, after being swept away in a river like that, when you're already tired, cold, exhausted, and then throw that in on top. Um, he, he did incredibly well to get that far and then to come back out and sort of do a little bit more as well. And I just see here in fifth place, another Irish trail winner, Rene, um, Irene Finnegan as well, making the top five there. So it sounds like such a tough race, but the Irish were well represented. Speaking of races, Rene, it's we're coming into a really exciting time of the year where there's lots of great races on. If anybody goes to the Imra website and opens up the event section there, there's literally maybe at least two races a week for the rest of the summertime between Leinster Leagues, Munster Leagues, Munster Championships as well. Then you have some of the, the big international races as well, like the European Championships where Ireland will be sending over a, a strong squad too. We've got all our big international circuits, UTMB races. Um, we've got the Masters, of course, coming up in September alongside Kerryway Ultra and Eco Trail. September will be a very, very busy month. So people are probably planning about how they're going to try and go about their training and their racing. And say for a month like September, where we've got three really popular races, where some people might try and do all three, um, although I think the Kerryway Ultra and the World Masters are on the same weekend, so that mightn't be possible. It's very important that we plan right in terms of putting the right amount of effort into our training and not getting to our races exhausted. And likewise then, doing our races, but then not getting too tired to be able to make to do to do some quality training as well so very very happy and looking forward to hearing your thoughts Randy, on this um, important topic yeah, you can summarize it with your know, Arthur Lydiard's words because he was good at throwing out these kind of memorable letters and he just said you can't train hard and race hard at the same time although you know you you there's always exception you can't put any rule um into words without s- someone holding up their hand and saying well hang on a minute what about people like Kipchoge and Galen Ropp and all these who seemed to just train at an incredible level. Killian Jornet is another, right? He basically doesn't taper. Um, and the reason he doesn't is, one, he has a VO2 max of over 90 and he's extraordinarily well-trained since childhood. So he has a high work capacity, you know, that is nearly incomparable. And you can probably say the same about Kipchoge. But also because, um, especially people like Killian Jornet, he used to have so many races that if he actually tapered and backed off, he would lose too much fitness. Um, he could, so he had to just stay right up there. Um, and he happened to be able to pull that off. And there are some people, I've worked with some too at a lower level who, who somehow can take it. You know, um, So the only thing you can do with these people is just say, well, I asked them, you know, do you feel normal? And mm-hmm. if I get the sense that, yeah, yeah, no, I'm grand. We just start training again, you know, and we just go by what they tell me. And I put in little workouts after, let's say, a race like Waterville 130K. I had a guy do that controlled. You know, you shouldn't think that's possible, but that's what he did. Um, and he was fine very, very quickly after. Um, and with him, we just put in a few workouts to confirm that he was telling the truth, you know. So we would do a few strides just to see, this is, does his body actually work normally? You know, can he actually top up the speed and he gets the right contact with the ground and he feels like 
his body is moving through a full range of motion. You know, similarly, you could put in a very light hill session to see is the muscular strength correct? You know, is it back to normal? Um, and this is very similar to the approach taken by professional teams, except I don't have the software that, say, Liverpool can afford. Um, mm. Because they, they actually, I was reading an article in The Athletic, just to give them a little plug, about how they, their recovery setup is. And as you can imagine, there are dozens of physios working with thousands of metrics flowing into a system. And they can literally see the exact percentage chance that if they do this type of training, the chance of this injury is so high or so low. So we don't quite have that luxury. We need to go a little bit more low tech within the budget we have as a running outfit. And so for these kind of very unique people who can resume training very quickly in racing season, I just try and use these little dip your foot in the water sessions to see, does it look like this person is functioning the way they did before the race? And if so, okay, they are a little bit freakish in their biology and we let them carry on. And can you give us, Remy, maybe a little example of a session like that, just to test ourselves out? Imagine, say, we've done a, a race on a Saturday morning, um, you know, let us just say uh, 20K, 20K trail running race on a Saturday morning. Um, what type of session could we use to, to see how we're doing? Um, and how many days should we wait? And I know I remember Jerry Kiernan, when I was with him, Back in 2010, I spent the track season with Jerry. It was great. And one of the great things I learned from Jerry was he would never let us do a hard session or any session um, the seven days after the weekend of a race. So, you know, typically, you know, you'd have your club session on a Tuesday, maybe even a bit of a tempo run or another track session on the Thursday. If you raced at the weekend, you wouldn't be doing anything hard until the Saturday or Sunday. And I know, say, for road races, you can pretty much kind of take the rule that for every 10K of a race, it is a week that you need. So say, for example, if you're doing a marathon, you know, you're going to need maybe a month of just easy running. In the trails, it's not quite as strict. So what are your own thoughts on that, Renny? Maybe how long and an example of a session? Yeah, so we, I would have, you before they went metric, you know, they always said one day per mile, which... It's obviously a little bit simplistic, but it, it works well enough as a rule of thumb, you know, and that's kind of a week for a 10K because it's it's just over six miles. Yeah. Um, and you could then say for a half marathon, it's nearly two weeks. And that's probably a nice cautious approach. Does that mean there are no runners who could shake off a half marathon faster? No, you know, some people could get away with that. But they, see, they would know themselves, you know, because it, so the sessions we would use is, is classically a form of fairly reduced strides. Um, I always tend to start with just an easy run, especially if it's a very heavy run. You know, I just said, just go out for a short, easy run. Um, and if you don't feel better within 30, you know, 20, 30 minutes, then just can it. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if you, if your body doesn't even respond positively to basically jogging around for 20 to 30 minutes, as in it doesn't get looser and you don't slightly get faster, then it is clearly so damaged still and traumatized by the race that you're not going to get anything positive out of continuing. And there's certainly no point trying to do strides. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that tends to be the first little milestone. And, and once we have checked that box, it is typically very, very short accelerations, you know, four to eight, 10 seconds sometimes, depending on experience, uh, followed with very long jogging recoveries. You know, they're kind of two, three minutes that we've discussed on this podcast before. Um, and the idea is that, first of all, these are not sprints. So I don't use the word sprint ever with this. 
because sprinting always gives people this idea that you know you really have to tense up and give it full effort and we're not looking for that at all all we want to see is that you can accelerate to something that is a good bit faster than easy and as you accelerate you look for two things you look for whether you know you feel like you're getting your normal bounce off the ground and the second thing is you're looking for are you actually tense or tight because when you do the stride you have to move through a large range of motion so it's quite revealing to see if there's still significant muscular damage or tightness in the joints that if you went out for a longer run or if you went out as you said to do a proper session those things would probably be major injury factors mm. so that, that does but it often can help if the person is applies this correctly it can often actually help loosen you out a bit yeah. you know okay. rather than just doing a whole week of nothing but plodding but you say now we, we are talking about smaller races here you know we're, we're not talking about the post-marathon recovery for instance you know where i actually i tend personally to schedule two weeks with no structure that that's my default for marathoners i just say for the next two weeks if you do any running at all it's very little no schedule no targets you know and any kind of pain or niggle don't do it go for a walk or do something else and only in only in week three do we pick it up again but that can become tricky when you have these kind of ultra trail running beasts that we coach quite a few of you know who are using um let's say a trail marathon as just a session ahead of let's say an 80 100 120k um trail race a bit later you know say 10 12 weeks down the road in those cases you can't you can't take two weeks just off and just say do whatever you want and if it's nothing fine you you have to try and see can we normalize the body a little bit quicker you know so we dip our feet in the water as much as we can with these sessions and the first sign that okay this person is functioning normally we resume the training because we if we lose too much time then obviously the a race they're not going to be properly prepared for it yeah and um, you mentioned at the start of the conversation really about training hard and then racing hard and you can't do the two so would i be writing saying that say coming in into the summer months that a lot of the hard training should have been done say in march april now may and say for somebody who might have their a race at the start of july let's say some of the irish guys um, who are going over to the european championships now in la palma and um, what do you think should should the guys and girls on the team should they be trying to smash out PB sessions during the month of June in the final three or four weeks? Or should they have hit their best times in training back in May and April? And now actually kind of in June, they can you know take it down a notch or two where they don't need to be going as fast on the tempo runs or they don't need to be running their splits if they're doing any one case intervals on the road, for example, on the flat. They don't need to be up there as much because it's about just maintaining what they have. And I think, isn't there a rule that, you know, it takes roughly a two week time period for gains and fitness to appear in the body. So if they do, if they are doing sessions that are too hard, a week or 10 days out before the race, they won't actually get the fitness benefit from it. That applies mainly to aerobic training. 
Um, so that, that's why it's important to know what types of training work uh, at what speeds they basically manifest in the body, you know, and this is something Arthur Lydia wrote about already back in the 50s, but he had observed it through experience. So his experience was that there was no point in doing hard anaerobic training, as they used to call it then, you know, so all of the, the kind of uh, anything faster than 10 mile pace, really, you know, he said there was no reason to do much of that, if any, um, in as part of the winter, you know, base training because you peak out in those adaptations within five to six weeks. Mm. Um, and that means, it, and it also has a negative impact on your work capacity, you know, because it, it competes a bit with the other, you know, the base you're trying to build. So if you know that, okay, once I start hard track training, like real proper demanding sessions that are very close to race pace, I only need four to six weeks to fully optimize those systems you can roughly then make out that actually you know i when the first race i want to be really at complete in terms of i've developed all of my capacities to the maximum um, i just need to go four to six weeks before that and that's when i'm going to start making you know these really intense sessions okay. um, and that will work then on right so that that capacity will be in place what most people do, though, is they tend to overlap it a little bit because they they have a big racing season. You know, sometimes like if you're racing all through the summer, sometimes you kind of fold in the first few races as actually the last sessions. And you accept that for the first few races, you don't care if you are 100 um, percent because they're just kind of testers, you know. And in the old days, when there wasn't so many races, they would often as part of that final, final period of preparation, they put in time trials. You know, it could be under distance or over distance, you know, depending on what the runner thought they were weakest in endurance or speed. So they might say, well, I, I'm running a 5,000 um, next month. So I'm going to start to put in some 3,000 meter control time trials because I feel that the speed side of the 5,000 is where I'm worst. So I'm going to run some control fast efforts and see, can I improve, you know, my rhythm, my pacing, all these sorts of things. Um, and then the, there usually would be at least one other session in, in a week like that. So you don't have to be worried about that, but you do need to time it correctly. And then you need to know that the moment those races start to come thick and fast, those sessions have to go away because mm. now the races are, at this stage, you know, there's an old thing about whenever you're building um, capacity, you're putting money in the bank. So this is when you're building aerobic capacity, which is the endurance. And when you're building your maximum speed and when you're building this thing, they call anaerobic capacity. So that means your ability to tolerate, let's say, 5K pace or 10 kilometer hill race pace, your ability to tolerate that. Once you've built that and you've put it in the bank, the moment you start racing one to two times a week, you are actually withdrawing that. And as the weeks pass, it's nearly impossible not to lose a little bit of this. You tend to still perform better because you're peaking now. You're getting more rested. The training is a little bit lighter. You get better coordination and rhythm, You know, especially on the descent. People tend to get better after a few races. But eventually you start to see a drop in the performances and you start to feel this sense of staleness and tiredness and regular soreness. And that's the time then that the bank account now is quite low and you need to return from the racing season and do a few weeks refresh if you want to continue to race 
or you need to say, well, that's it now. You know, this was my racing season. If I want to continue racing, I'll have to do it through hard training and I'll need to put less importance on the races I'm going to do. The best thing though would be to say, well, for a few months now, you know, I've had a three, four months long summer season. I'm going to not do any important racing. You know, I'm just going to focus on, on rebuilding. And I think even from a mental point of view, Rennie, as well, we have to be careful not to overstimulate and overload our, our mental capabilities as well. Because if we are, you know, racing every weekend, that can leave us fatigued mentally as well. I remember there just in the month, what, let me see, in the month of April, yeah, the month just gone, um, I did a race on a Sunday. Then the following Saturday, I did another race. And uh, for the third weekend, I knew I was going to be away, just various family things were going on. So I actually, I didn't follow the rules that we're talking about there. And I did a hard session on the Tuesday. So race Sunday, race Saturday, and a hard session on the Tuesday. Now, the three of them went very well. The two races went well. The third session uh, went great. But then that was me done for about 10 days. I was easy running in zone one and zone two for about 10 days after that. Throw in a bit of a trip with the family. And yeah, you know, and then it took me then a little bit of a while then to get going again during May. Um, and I suppose it just emphasizes the point that if we are racing hard, you know, if someone is doing, say, their, their Leinster leagues on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday, isn't it so important to, that they drop right back down into the lower end of zone two and then zone one for their easy runs. Yeah, very, that's yeah, that's a great point that you remind me of that on because that that is a very easy way to try and balance out the extra stress because races obviously tend to be even higher stress than the hardest sessions you've already done. Um, and already when you start introducing these really intense workouts, it tends to be a good idea to make most of the easy running in the lower half of easy, what we call zone one, rather than zone two you know, which is the upper end of easy. And this is what the elites have been studied as doing is that, you know, I think we might've talked about it on the last podcast, but is that you, the elites, they look at their easy as this kind of big range. And depending on how they feel on any given day, they will gravitate towards the top of easy or the end of easy. So they, they're very flexible there. And that allows the body then to not be overloaded because on days where they feel extra affected by the previous training, they, they basically deload a little bit more than maybe the, the schedule would normally call for. So they, they're not very strict on a lot of this kind of filler easy pace. Yeah, but, I suppose but, for, for ourselves at a local level then, isn't it so important really that, that we leave the ego at home and when we go for a run and maybe we see somebody that we beat in the last race, but on a Wednesday or a Thursday, we see them flying along, going faster than us. We're back in our zone one recovering. But if we have the patience to stay in our zone one, we'll probably be still ahead of them the next day because they're maybe stuck in zone three consistently all the time and they don't get the benefit then of being able to perform on race day. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think the last thing maybe for people to know when they look at the racing season ahead is that the you you can divide the weeks you have over the summer into what is called race week and non-race week. And a non-race week is any week you, you say, well, actually, this week, I'm not going to do either the Wednesday or the Saturday, Sunday races. Those weeks, you generally will do well to increase your volume a bit again, up towards where it used to be. 
um, and you will work on on other things, you know, that that you think you are needing. So that's the time where you can polish off a little bit things where you think you were particularly weak, or you can shore up some of the qualities you feel are flagging. You know, maybe you feel that after six weeks of racing. Uh, your stamina is really flagging, you know, so you could put in a slightly more steady workout to shore that up. And we did that with an 800 meter runner very recently, you know, because I felt he'd had a lot of races. He'd had a lot of middle distance track work. So it just made sense. I thought to give him a 5,000 meter session instead, you know, to try to just rebuild his basic aerobic capacity you know which is the vo2 that you do when you run 5k work that that's the sort of decision making you can get into and of course it requires a little bit of experience but then when you get into race week it you you drop the volume again and then the workouts that you do they are more like sharpening workouts so they don't have massive volume yeah. Um, and for a lot of hobby people, like if you're doing the two races in your race week, then obviously you don't really need to do anything else except for maybe a few strides the day before. Yeah. And if you have only one race and it's a high intensity race, there's lots of easy workouts you can do. You could do a reduced version of something you did previously. You know, so if you used to do, let's say, 20 times 400, just as an example, if that was your big, big workout, um, you could just do six 400s. You know, so for you, that shouldn't be very demanding if you were able to do 20 um yeah. but it might just keep that going um or you can do little weird workouts like wind sprints which is is an older workout that's gone out of fashion but it's quite a nice sharpener it's where you do basically 50 meters or 100 meters um where you alternate really fast with just floating and it's a workout that tends to be over in six to ten minutes it's quite high intensity so it keeps that you know high-end racing fitness activated but you recover much quicker than you would have done from those you know sessions that more people are familiar with you know like five by one k's or 20 minutes of one minute up one minute down that sort of thing yeah and i know on the hills ran a, a great type of session that i used for many years between 2010 and up until last year haven't been on the hills too much yet this year is a one up one down as in one minute running hard you know as steep as an incline as you can find and then one minute recovery jog back down you might start at say eight by one up eight by one down and then that progresses in terms of the number of reps that you do upwards you might get up as far as up to say 12 by one or you can go instead of just one minute hard you can progress it up to two minutes hard so you know when you're at the peak of your training cycle you might be doing 10 by two hard up with maybe a one minute jog back recovery. But then as you're getting close to your championship race or your key race, you bring it right back down just to one up, one down. And instead of 12, you might be back down at six to eight. And for the hill runners out there, that is a superb session to get you fit for nearly any race. Yeah, totally agree. And I think it encapsulates the key advice to take away, which is it's you're actually taking advantage of one of the laws of training, which is that it takes less effort to maintain fitness than to build fitness. Mm. So once you know that and you say, okay, I have built my, let's say VO2. So that's your high ability to run at a fairly high intensity. Once you've built that with a, let's say you got up to, we in our club, I'll give you that example. We, we build our way up to 20 minutes of 30, 30 mm. in, two, in two sets of 10. Um, and we once we've done that, we have revisited it about every month 
But then we do much less than that. We might just do 10 minutes. And it's because we're no longer trying to build this. You know, we, we finished building it in winter as far as we are concerned. Now we're just trying to maintain it because we're doing enough racing as well that people get, you know, a lot of VO2 kind of, that, that system gets enough stress there too. Um, so that's just what people, if whatever you, you need to pick a place in your season where you say, this is when I'm going to stop building. Now it's about using what I've built. And that means all the training sessions I'm going to fit in between my races cannot be as ambitious as what I did earlier in the year. But next winter, when I've built a new base, maybe a bigger base, then I might look to make those sessions even more challenging. You know, And that's the luxury you have if you don't get injured or inconsistent, is that every season you could slightly create a bigger house in the winter. You know, and that obviously then will result in even uh, the ability to race even better the next year. And a lot of people don't get that because they are inconsistent and then when or get injured, of course. And then when they get into the winter, they might just be rehashing exactly the same sessions as the year before. Or they might not even be able to replicate what they did the previous year. Yeah. Well, well, listen, Renny, great advice as always. And as I'm looking at the Inver calendar here, we've got some great names in the calendar coming up. We've got Trooper Soundhill tomorrow night, um, Karen Tuchel down in Kerry, Jouse, the Wicklow Ray individual race, um, Jouse again, Great Irish Trail Run, Sorrel Hill, the Galti Half Marathon, Scar, and then, of course, the European Mountain Running Championships in La Palma. Um, will you be racing in any of those yourself, Renny? Yes, not Troopers because I, I, I actually am in this situation that I feel like the balance between racing and training hasn't been quite right for the last month. It's time for a little bit more training, a little bit less racing. Um, although it is very tempting because Troopers is so, you know, I always, it's very, very close to my house. Um, but I am hoping maybe to do um, Sorrel Hill on my birthday because I have a very good memories of that race. Uh, it's a very nice race. And the Devil's Glen is a race I... Um, I was the first to, not the first to suggest the route, but the first to put the race on for Imra. Uh, so I, I love that place. It's a really nice valley. Uh, yeah. So that would be another nice one. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I might be able to fit in one more before we go away for our summer holidays. Very good on July 6th. Great stuff. But as Rene, thanks, Will. And if anybody wants to get any more coaching advice from Rene, you can get him on runningcoach.ie. And we've just heard the coaching advice. And now it's time to call in Jason Kyo to keep us all injury free. Thanks, Will, Rene. Talk to you soon, mate. Thank you all. For our special guest slot this week, I'm delighted to have Jason Kyo with us. I've known Jason for a long time now. Since 2012, Jason has specialised in running technique and has successfully trained hundreds of runners to overcome chronic injuries and become essentially faster athletes. He is a qualified neuromuscular therapist. He runs a very successful clinic in Belgard Heights in Tala, just off the M50. And I'm sure what is a big factor in making Jason so successful with the people that he treats is that he himself was a very successful mountain runner. He was the Irish mountain running champion in 2015 and 2017. He has represented Ireland on the hills and he also won the prestigious Karen Tuchel mountain race in 2011 and in 2017. Jason, you're very welcome to the show. Jason, we've been looking forward to having you on the show for a long time now. So it's great to have you here finally. 
Good stuff, Owen. Thanks. And uh, I guess first, before we get started, can I just say uh, thanks for all your hard work in putting together such great content on the podcast. I've been tuning to you for, oh gosh, since the beginning. That's over two years now, isn't it? And uh, it's always been great. You're, you're such an upbeat host and um, I enjoy all the different guests you have from the Irish scene. And, and Excellent. Excellent. I no, appreciate that, Jason. And, and listen, how have you recovered since your own busy weekend there? What about two, two weekends ago now and um, with your work at the Wicklow Way Relay? Um, we spoke about it on the podcast in our last episode. Um, it was a great day all around, I think, um, but lots of hard work behind the scenes as well. Yes, um, it's, it was quite busy. The, the relay is, as I always equate it to, running about eight races in one day. And you have to have all the, the there's a lot of moving parts. So um, obviously I have two great helpers with um, with Rene, uh, Rene Borg and uh, Bill Halliden. Uh, this year was was very unusual. So yeah, it's, we had about a, a week of, of making sense of uh, sort of rules and the situation we found ourselves in. And um, we came up to uh, come up with a decision that um, that would make half half the crowd happy and half the crowd unhappy. But um, I think it'll be it'll be good for the for the relay in in the coming years. Okay, okay. Well, listen, we look forward to the next year already, Jason. And, and and speaking of racing, it's one of the reasons why you know I'm looking forward to talking to you today. And what we're going to go through maybe over the next half an hour, Jason, is key tips and pointers for the listeners that hopefully help keep them injury-free. Because as we know, Jason, the two of us have been there over the years from our own training and our own racing. There's nothing worse than being excited about a race or excited about a block of training and then getting the niggle, getting the injury. You get injured, you try to get back, it's not working, you're getting compensation, niggles and injuries left, right and centre. So, so important to spot the signals that something is coming and then getting the right help as well. So we've got three or four, I think, good tips, good areas to focus on over the next maybe, what, 25, 30 minutes. And the first one, Jason, that I was going to ask you about was trigger points. What are they and why are they important? So trigger points, um, I suppose when I explained them to to, uh, clients here um, in my clinic, I I explained them that they're... um, they're like a, a knot in your muscles. So when you when you have a fiber, we're all made up of fibers in, in our muscles. So if you could open a piece of chicken or steak, you see all those fibers um, within the within the um, within the muscle itself. So these these uh, trigger points are kind of uh, hyper irritable little nodules, and they're ver- they're very small. They can be the size of a grain of sand or maybe a very small ball bearing. And as these little nodules get bigger within the fibers, it pulls on either end of the fiber. So now that fiber, instead of being nice and relaxed, it's very uh, tiny, kind of like a guitar string. So you can have dozens of these within a a muscle fiber. And now all the healthy fibers can only stretch as as far as those unhealthy fibers, the ones with the trigger points in them. So, and uh, so the effect of of, of some uh, on someone would be that the muscles themselves are overall tight. You might feel a little bit restricted in, in, in the muscle or the joint. Um, and then the other thing which makes them very unique is that they send something called referred pain. So that's basically sending pain to a different area than where the trigger point is. So usually that would manifest in the likes of uh, joints. So the elbows, knees, uh, you know, big toe joints, uh, ankles, that sort of thing. Um, so in my experience, probably, you know, 95% plus of all the pain that you'll ever experience in your body will come from a trigger point. And okay. um, it's just, it's, it's something that uh, I'm, I'm quite passionate about because um, 
when I when I when I treat them here in the in the clinic, we just get phenomenal results, and um, it's 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 kept me on the road uh, during times of lots of niggles in, in my own running. Yeah, and Jason, when do we need to say call somebody like yourself in and book an appointment? When do we need to get out the roller? Like, is it as soon as we feel a bit of tension on a calf muscle or around the ankle area? Should we just should we stop running straight away, or is it? I know every injury now, every little niggle can be different, but just general pointers, Jason. Do we need to go straight away to yourself, or can we say do work at home with tennis balls, with some hand massage work on these trigger points? Is there any overall guidance that we can apply? Yeah, so I think uh, once you kind of uh, understand what trigger points are and how to find them, um, then it's, it's quite uh, it's quite easy to either um, release them yourself or to give yourself good relief. So I'd always recommend that someone has the likes of uh, a hard ball, like a hockey ball or maybe um, a stiff foam roller. And as soon as they feel like a little niggle coming in, that they, they go in and start exploring the muscle. And one of the ways you'll know you're on a trigger point is that when you start putting pressure on the muscle, you'll find particular points that really hurt and there's a good chance that that's the trigger point itself. So um, first thing you do is you go explore the muscle yourself uh, and then if you can't get any relief or maybe if it's been going on for maybe two weeks at that stage, we'd probably say, you know, that's that's probably a chronic issue there and you need just a little bit of a helping hand to get out of it. Okay. I've often found myself, Jason, even say before runs when I have a little bit of tightness there, literally in the half an hour before I go out the door, I'll get onto a golf ball or I'll get onto the roller and I'll find these points of tension. And, you know, you can release the tension by, what is it, maybe applying five, six seconds of applied pressure. Then after maybe two or three goes of that, you just see the muscle relax out, literally just drop out, droop out. And then that releases the tension. And I find then that that's often a great way to start your training session. A little bit of the applying the pressure, the muscle relaxes, and then you're good to go. Good to go. Sorry, at the door. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you want to the person myself. Um, if I'm heading out and I feel like you know what, the calf is feeling a little bit tight or the hamstrings feels a little bit tight, I'll go and get my ball and I will spend about ten or fifteen minutes before I head out the door. And then I might do the same when I come back as well. So I I, I would always prioritize doing soft tissue release work uh, okay. over say traditional stretching. Okay. Okay. Super. Um. Moving on, Jason, to software and hardware. Now, this was a whole new concept for me a couple of years ago, and I first came across it when I had a bad abductor tear, Jason, around 2015. I was just racing too much, too much racing on the roads as well, not enough recovery between races, and I got a bad tear to my abductor. And it was explained to me at the time that I needed to reset the software, that my brain had nearly forgotten how to stride properly that i needed to just reprogram everything and it was only when i fixed the software if you like because i had got so tense after 18 months two years of constant niggles and injuries that it was only when i reset everything through various different exercises that i got going again and then i was fine and it just emphasized the importance of the concept of software and hardware so could you maybe take us through that Okay, so um, when I'm working with someone, I would usually do something called a biomechanical assessment, um, which is sort of a, a two-hour session. And um, 
the way I like to break that up is into two different aspects. So the first aspect we're looking at is the, the person's mobility. And that's in, you know, what their muscles, tendons, joints, ligaments, the type of range of motion they have in those. Um, and we'd call those sort of hardware. So when we go to, to say upgrade your hardware or to change your hardware, that's a very difficult thing to do. It takes a minimum of six weeks before you see any sort of meaningful change. So, um, how you improve things like that are mobility exercises, mobility drills, and soft tissue release, you know, finding those trigger points and releasing them. So that's, um, that's the, the hardware aspect of it. Um, you know, over the last, say, you know, 30 years of, usually when someone comes to me, they're in their uh, 30, 30s, 40s, and um, you know the body has taken it. Uh, the body has taken a, a toll from, you know, maybe a little bit of sedentaryism. It could be um, just lack of movement in general. It could be uh, the sport that they've been playing. So the body's gone through wear and tear. So that's the, one of the first things I look at: your hardware and, and see um, how what what range of motion you have, and things that you aren't, uh, let's just say, uh, good at doing. Then coming up with a plan to get you back at, at doing those uh, those things. And they're usually what we would call natural movements. So um, resting positions will be one of the one of the things. So you've heard of things like you know your deep squat or sitting on your shins or sitting cross-legged on the floor. And they're all very good ways to sort of start uh, um, uh, tackling your hardware uh, issues. Then I guess the, the other aspect would be software. So the software would be how you uh, consciously or subconsciously you, your mind thinks about, um, thinks about uh, moving. So whether that's uh, your walking gait or your running gait. Um, now, when we, when we change software, things like that can happen very quickly. So I've changed people, um, their software within less than a minute. Which is uh, a few um, a few different types of uh, coaching cues. So you know, do X, do Y, do Z, and next of all, those changes happen nearly instantaneous, and we can see that they're they're moving different. Yeah, and um, on the software, Jason, what are those X, Ys, and Zs? Are they are they leaning forward slightly? Are they dropping the shoulders? What are say the two two or three simple things that we can all try and apply straight away? So um, we usually divide um, running technique into kind of three or four different areas. Uh, the first one, which a lot of people will be familiar with, is posture. So posture can also can be what you perceive to be good posture. A lot of people walk around thinking they have good posture, but then when they see themselves on camera or in a mirror, uh, they realize quite quickly, oh, actually, it's not as good as, as, I, uh, as I thought it was. So posture is, is one of those uh, is one of those things. Um, now, are you interested in, in little little cues right now, or, or do you want to do that? Yeah, the, yeah, Jason. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, like little things that we can all maybe try and and work on as we go out training over the next couple of days. Like I, I know a big one that we've all probably read about um, is cadence, and this magic number of 180 uh, steps per minute. And, and I've often wondered about it, Jason. Now, I know it's a good number to aspire to, but would I be right in saying that it's not a magic bullet either? It's not that if we get to 180 beats per minute, we're not going to be injury-free forever and ever, nor do we need to get obsessed with 180. There'll be different parts of a run where we, where we might be at 160. It might Maybe towards the end of a race and a sprint finish, we might be at 190. So is that 180, that's more just of a guidance or, or, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, should we be at 180 strictly for every minute as we're running? 
So there's a there's a bit of a spectrum there. So it's been shown kind of 173 steps per minute to 183 steps per minute. That's the spectrum there. And sometimes that can depend on your height as well, because we've got longer levers, the, the taller you are. Um, generally, when we're uh, when I'm retraining someone, we'd we'd get them to aspire to that 180 uh, steps per minute, um, and then they would train like that for a while. Um, and you'd use the likes of a, a metronome, or all the modern watches now have cadence built into them, and maybe even a metronome built into it. So you can have that displaying live, and you can check it afterwards. And when you kind of stick to stick to it quite strictly at the beginning, it can take about six weeks for for that change to kind of set in. And then people tend to gravitate towards their own natural cadence. But if we, if that cadence tends to drop between below that 170, you know, you're starting to overstride then. And then that's when we start making sort of inappropriate shapes and um, our muscles aren't in the correct position to be able to dissipate that ground reaction force that we experience when we run. And then, then you start getting the little niggles and injuries. Okay. Okay. And I think most watches these days, they will tell you what your cadence is and um, the average is when, when you go back and you look at your data files after your run. Um, to go back to hardware for a second, Jason, as well, I, I find this area really fascinating. Um, and I'm sure just all of us have tried maybe various running yoga movements, Pilates movements, um, the deep squat, as you mentioned there. And most of us, I think, struggle with them. What have you seen, Jason, from working with your clients and, you know, for people that are running 20 years and, you know, maybe for the first 10 years, they were doing lots of stretching, but they never did any of these natural movement things. And they'd be, you know, sitting in offices for the last 20 years. Are we lost causes or can we actually break that rigidness that's there, (laughs) that unflexibility? And can we can we make improvements? Well, there's hope. There is hope. Um... (laughs) You'll be glad to hear. And um, it's it's one of those things when you're working on mobility, it's one of these things, and it's the same with soft tissue release work. Whatever you put into it is what you get out of it. And in my experience, the, the people that have done the best with it are the guys that have spent a lot of time trying to practice it. And it's um it, it's it's one of those things that said whatever amount of time you put into it, you'll you'll reap the rewards, you know, tenfold uh, when it comes out. Okay. Okay, so it's just a matter of sticking with it. And I know even what I try and do myself, Jason, is again, before and after runs, if I have time, you know, I'll try and, you know, I'll stick on the Pilates running video and I'll try and go through the exercises. Some of them I can do, some of them I can't. But I think it is just so important just to keep on top of it and just to try and keep breaking down that rigidness. And maybe you'll never get full flexibility there. But I think isn't it better just to be trying to do it and to try to yeah. keep the body flexible rather yeah, well, than looking for perfection? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And but look, another thing is, you know, a, a lot of people beat themselves up about uh, saying, "Oh, I have to do more stretching. I should be doing more stretching." And it's nearly when they come into me here, it's like a confession: I don't do stretching, you know. And it, it just gives me a little giggle because I'm kind of to me, I'm saying to myself, I'm "Like, who has time for stretching? I certainly don't have time to be doing twenty minutes a day of stretching." So one of the best things I can advise someone to do is to get off their couch, spend time sitting on a hard floor. Uh, When you sit on a hard floor, you move your bones in a way that the muscles have no choice but to stretch naturally and elongate. And um, it might be, it could be difficult for someone to do initially, 
but you'll find that after practicing that for you know two or three months of just sitting on the floor instead of the couch even even if it's only for half an hour halfway to you know looking at something on netflix or whatever or browsing your phone you start to to gravitate more towards the floor than the couch like i very very rarely sit on my couches here at home unless i'm um, snuggling up to Anne or something like that for a cuddle on a saturday night but besides yeah. that i'm sitting on the floor and when i get up from the floor I feel I feel great. Hips feel great. Lower back feels great. Legs feel great, and um, it's it, you plus you're saving yourself time. So if you can inject um, different types of movement into your daily life, you're going to find that well. Number one, you're 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 saving time. Number two, your mobility is going to tr- uh, go to, go through the roof. And number three, you're probably going to pick up less injuries as well. Yeah. So I think it's all about keeping tissue healthy. And I know that you're a big believer in, in getting tissues healthy. And yeah, that can be often all those things you mentioned can be better than spending an hour, certainly in a gym, doing strength work on, on static machines and, you know, old style, old school stretching that it's about just, yeah, keeping those tissues moving and healthy. Yeah. Um, I, I, as you said, I'm, I'm a big believer in getting tissue healthy first. Um, People think strength work is going to overcome uh, injuries, and the, the way I explain it is that, you know, when someone it comes to me with an injury, what I'll see is that the the tissue that's that's causing the pain is in trouble. So I would call it dysfunctional tissue because it's riddled with trigger points. Now, if you have tissue which is full of these trigger points, and then you start to try and strengthen these muscles, you know, like you know, strengthen the glutes or strengthen the quads or whatever it is. You find then, and if you do a really, really good job of that, you know, so you follow your 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 instructions to to the to the letter. At, at the end of the process, you're going to have yes, a very strong muscle, but it's still going to be dysfunctional because it, those trigger points still remain there. So you'll have a strong dysfunctional muscle by the time you finish with it. My approach is, I get the tissue back healthy first. That's what I think uh, athletes should focus on. Look for your trigger points, release them yourself. If you can't do it yourself, go to someone who's familiar with trigger points. Then. Once the pain goes away, you'll either likely not bother to do your strength work, but I think everyone should do a bit. And, and then you go off and you, you do all your strength work because you're going to be working from a healthy um, muscle then. So you'll have, by the end of it, you'll have a healthy, strong muscle instead of a healthy diso- or a strong dysfunctional muscle. And okay. that's, that's my approach that gives a uh, great success. And I know I think one of the techniques that you use to get tissues healthy again, it's the myofascial trigger point dry needling and maybe jason could you explain to us what that what that involves it's different than i think acupuncture it's different than the tens the electrical nerve stimulation so if somebody does have a muscle injury they go to you and you're going to start the dry needling process with them could you maybe talk us through what is it and how and why it works so well Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so there's, there's many different types of um, dry needling, which which has the label dry needling. Um, but you'll find that there's 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 many varieties of it, and, and each one can be quite different. So um, traditionally, you would have had uh, Chinese acupuncture, which is all about um, you know chi chi energy and meridian lines and uh, getting chi flowing back through muscles. And uh, yes, that can be that can be good. And like it, it wouldn't be around for over two thousand years if, if there wasn't um, uh, good results with it, or, or, or you know at least some good results with it. So with the with the, the dry needle I do, it's um, I just use one acupuncture needle. So same acupuncture needles, the very very thin uh, monofilament needle, 
uh, you'd fit about 20 of them within a hypodermic uh, injection needle where you've, you've taken blood or if you've got an injection. Uh, so very, very thin. And it just kind of pushes its way through the, the muscle fibers. When I'm, when I'm doing it here, I'm, I'm first of all palpating muscle to find out where those trigger point areas are. And then I'm trying to hit them with the, with the needle itself. And it's once you hit a trigger point, I don't think you'll ever forget it because you get like a, a local area, we call it a twitch response in the muscle. You can feel like a little pulse or a little thump um, yeah. or a twitch. And it's usually accompanied by like a, a zap, little zap of electricity you can feel like. Um, a lot of people will come into the clinic saying that they've had it done before. And I'd say within about 30 seconds to a minute of doing it, they realize that they've never actually had spine uh, <laughs> eating before. It's, it's, it's an experience that you, you, don't, you, you, don't, um, you don't forget. And uh, it just gets phenomenal results. So it's, it's the gold standard way to get rid of uh, trigger points. You can, okay, it, yeah, you, it, can, it, you can get rid of them with just using uh, pressure as well and deep massage and that, but it's not uh, as effective as the dry needle. Okay. And if people are, say, fearful of pain, <laughs> fearful of needles, um, <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, Jason, what, what is that pain level? Are we right up there at 10? Are we jumping off your table there? Or, or um, how bad? There's a lot of jumping goes on. I, I have a swear jar here on the uh, on the desk, and uh, it gets filled regularly. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. but it's it's more of a it's more of a shock, really. Uh, you're not expecting it, and the next one is just kind of like a little a little jump, a little a little zap. Some people, it's not for them. They just you know even before even the mention of the word needle, they're not um, they're they're not up for it. Um, okay. And other people, you know, they might, uh, we might only be, have to use it very sparingly. And we just use that on the, on the biggest, meanest uh, trigger points. Okay. And say, if we do go to you, we get some dry needling, probably because we're feeling injured or we have some damaged tissue. But as you know, Jason, us runners, we hate to miss days. We hate missing days when we're injured. And we just hate missing days, even if we have to get treatment. And you might say to us, right, guys, we've done the dry needling. I need you to rest for 48 hours. What is the rest period, Jason, after you do a session like that on the dry needling? Can we go out and run that night? Can we run the next day? What do you recommend in general? Um, it, it varies. Um, generally, we'd say do nothing the next day. Uh, it, there'll be kind of a, kind of a bruisey feeling left. Usually, the pain that they've come with is gone, but it's kind of replaced with kind of a bruisey feeling on the tissue that we treated, and that can last anywhere between three to five days. It really it really does depend. Uh, I find that older clients actually tend to get back a lot quicker. Some people will be running the next evening, um, just over twenty four hours later. Or, or, or within two days but myself when I get it done if I get uh, I've got my calf done um, just before Christmas there and I didn't want to do anything on it for about eight days wow okay you treat yourself Jason or, or do you go <laughs> <laughs> I do treat myself if I can reach the area I'll treat myself um, but I can only maybe stomach it for maybe about uh, two minutes or so and then I have okay. to I have to call it quits and I'll come back to it a couple of days later it's, uh, okay. it, it's tough to do it yourself Okay, brilliant. Well, listen, we've gone through some really fascinating things, Jason, and maybe just to finish the conversation off, you know, you've, you've had your skin in the game for, for a long time now, Jason, you've been working there in your practice as a neuromuscular therapist since 2016, as we mentioned at the top of the interview. Um, some final maybe pointers from you. What do you see are the main reasons, reasons why people are coming through your door injured um, is there anything that you'd like, just like to share that we haven't touched on yet over the last 20-25 minutes 
Um, well, I see all types of people. So I have general population people who come into me. So that's just, you know, Joe Self comes in off the street with a bad back and, you know, tennis elbow and that. Uh, I suppose I do specialise in, in sports injury injuries just because of my my um, my love of, of running and mental running. Um, and um, I guess that for someone who wants to be successful in running, you have to be consistent in your training. You cannot afford to be getting injured uh, in training. Like you can't afford to take a week off here, a week off there, you know, maybe have six weeks good good running streak and then another week off or two weeks off or, or whatever. You're never going to progress as, as you should be able to. So whenever someone comes into me with an injury and, and if you know running is their sport, the first thing I do is I get them up on the treadmill and I have a quick look at, at how they're running. And generally what we'll see is we'll see um, you know bad technique and some of the things we're looking out for there is overstriding landing out on on a heel on a straight leg you know a lot of ground reaction force uh, being um, put through uh, joints and through muscles which they, they shouldn't have to handle that amount of of, of load and then um, we start seeing little niggles coming in you, when you have an injury coming it will start like a little bit of stiffness and that's just your body saying you know i don't really like what you're doing to me here and if you keep going i'm gonna have to you know give you a, a full-blown injury here like your, your brain doesn't realize that you can go down to the swift care clinic to get to get fixed it, it thinks you know Owen is doing catastrophic damage to me here and if he keeps going here I'm going to be lying for it so mm, yeah that's what the injury is there for is to stop you is to stop you um and doing that to yourself okay and, and just uh, maybe a little bit left field Jason have you seen any negative impact in terms of the amount of injuries people get since the magic shoes have come in over the last what three or four years or so and um, i'm sure a lot of your clients use them especially you know with the dublin marathon um, every october back home um, have you seen a reduction or an increase in, um, in injuries I, I, to be honest i haven't seen um uh, i haven't seen someone come in to, to you know saying that or that they're using them and they're, they're picking up injuries that they never had before but from what i've seen with my own eyes is that i've seen that if you make um if you are uh, if you have a, if your technique is anyway unsound and if you put more cushioning underneath your your feet you're going to make bigger mistakes okay and a lot of those newer shoes are quite like they're really like platform shoes remember from yeah. the 60s they're, they're so tall and if you are landing uh, in a way, you know, heavily supinating or heavily pronating or whatever it is, you get more twisting and that going on in the lower leg. I, like I ran behind people and I'm, I'm nearly wincing every time I see them land because the, the whole foot rotates in a certain way. And instead of coming up and down, I see like a, like a spring. So um, just you've got to be careful. I think when you wear shoes like that, you've got to be quite skillful. In, in how you run or you just use maybe for race day um, yeah. and um, yeah, yeah so that's 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 sort of what, what I'm seeing just anecdotally yeah because I think the the return of energy from them is, is so strong and so immense that you really do need to have control there with your although, stride although what I, what I have what I have heard though is the recovery time is a lot quicker yeah yeah, yeah. I hear people yeah. Are, are good to go running you know pretty much you know uh, you know, they're, they're, after a race, you know, they're, they're, they don't feel as as as, uh, as beat up, which is which is a good thing, I guess. Yeah, sure there's, sure. there's no going back. The the, the, the horse is bolted, as they say, with the shoes. So, 
I yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see if they make some good ones for the mountains and for the trails, Jason. Um, well, listen, Jason, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks a million for that. If anybody wants to book an appointment with you, they can get you on jktherapy.ie. You're based in Belgard Heights there in Tala. Um, Jason, what's it like to, to get an appointment with you now? Are you flat out? Or if somebody has a bit of an ego, a bit of an injury, um, if they get in touch with you, when can they see you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite busy here, kind of um, a victim of my own success in, in some ways. So if you're a new client to come in, it does take about two or three weeks to get an appointment, um, okay. which is, I suppose, a good complaint in ways. But, um, you know, just give me a bit of notice and, and I'm sure we can get you in or, or maybe if we have um, a cancellation, maybe we can put you on the list there. Okay, brilliant. Wilson, Jason, uh, I've seen your work for many years now. I've spoken to people that I've got, for example, the, the biomechanical assessments done, and I've seen the document that you produced for them, and it's very comprehensive, and there's lots of fantastic photographs of yourself in that document as well, doing all those brilliant poses and brilliant deep squats and so on, and uh, as I said, you have your skin in the game for, for a long time now. So, Jason, thanks, Emil, and I look forward to talking to you again. That's great, On Listen, thanks, and best of luck with the rest of the podcast. For the rest okay, thank you, Jason. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 There we have it for this week, guys. A big thank you to Rene and Jason over at jktherapy.ie for their great tips this week on listening to the body, knowing when to ease off, and knowing when to push hard in a course in training as well, and therefore getting, as Jason said there, getting the consistency in the training that is needed to have a successful racing season. And that was certainly the standard message for me. Everybody, enjoy your training over the next few days. Train smart, enjoy it, keep a smile on your face as you're running, and everybody, Let's get our running gear on, let's go.